0: Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood, let's get radical about philosophy. One half of the world cannot understand the pleasures of the other. Jane Austen, Emma, 1816. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews, and I'm going to be playing part two of an interview I have conducted with Dr. Rebecca Hill on Sexual Difference. And I'm speaking to Dr. Rebecca Hill, who is a senior lecturer in the Literary Studies program at RMIT. And this is the second half of her interview. Welcome back to the program. Uh, Thanks, Beth. We're speaking about
1: sexual difference. There were just uh, continuing on from things that we were talking about in the last program, I wanted to say a little bit about um, the the use in i suppose I, I was just I was thinking that it might be interesting to consider sexual difference i mean sexual difference feminism is is taught and studied and written about by um, academic feminist theorists, mostly in uh, philosophy as a discipline but also increasingly in other fields such as um, in the law. In literary studies and other in, and other di- other disciplines in the humanities, uh, I guess because feminism, in some ways, Luce Rigueur defines herself fundamentally as a, a feminist philosopher, and she engages primarily in her work in reading other philosophers, mostly men, and this is in large part to do with the fact that most of the philosophers who are acknowledged in the Western tradition, our men, uh, women were I- in various ways excluded from participating in philosophy. Yeah, her work I- her work is largely philosophical in its emphasis. She's also studied in divinity studies. Uh, one of the other aspects of sexual difference philosophy for Rigore is an argument that we need to rethink the divine. So we need to rethink the divine as feminine. I won't go into that in any particular detail because I I don't think I could improvise a decent answer. For her, we need to talk about women gods. Uh, It's not okay in her terms that in the monotheist traditions... That, the God, that God has always been written in the masculine. Of course, there is a tradition of feminist theology that um, acknowledges this and is trying to think through this. And Arigure, among her many um, publications, one of the things that she does is engages in questions such as this, uh, this effort to rethink the divine in terms of in ways that are appropriate for, for women. Should I say a little about Lucy Rigoré and who she is, where she comes from? Would you? Would that yeah, a be bit good? of background information. Okay. Yep. Uh, so she was born in the early 30s, 1930s in Belgium, uh, and she emigrated to France and to Paris, in the, uh, I think, in her late 20s. She trained in philosophy, linguistics and psychoanalysis. For a number of years, she was actually a practising psychoanalyst. She's published many books – her second book is based on her philosophy PhD, and it's called *Speculum of the Other Woman*. It's a very famous book in feminist philosophy. Uh, it's a landmark text. It really, I, I, it, it really is the text, I suppose that uh, I would say, announces sexual difference as a as a theoretical approach to to philosophy and really to rethinking Western thought. It's, it engages with uh, philosophers such as Plato. Uh, the first part of the book is a close rereading of Freud. The last part of the book is a close rereading of Plato. And in the middle are a number of shorter essays on uh, very famous uh, male philosophical figures such as uh, Aristotle, Descartes, uh, Plotinus, Kant, Hegel. It's a... One of the Rigourel was also uh, so. This book um, was her PhD thesis. It um, was considered as a basically heretical text at the university where she was working at the time in Paris, and she was sacked from her job as a lecturer in psychoanalysis over this book. It really ruined her academic career. But she stayed on in Paris and continued to publish books, mostly in philosophy. And eventually she ended up with a position as a researcher at um, at a research institution in Paris. She now teaches seminars. She goes over to the UK and teaches seminars to graduate students, um, PhD students who are working on her work. She's written, I don't know, perhaps 30 or 40 books She's the first woman philosopher to have a philosophical society devoted to her work. Uh, there's now two of these. The second one is to the work of y- Yulia Christova, who's a Paris-based, Bulgarian-born feminist, actually, who denies that she's a feminist. That's another matter. Yeah, it, it, Irigaray, the Irigaray Circle was formed in 2006 by a group of graduate students and a professor at Stony Brook University in New York, upstate New- It's in Long Island in New York, and that's been running since 2006. We've had a number of conferences on her work. In fact, the most recent one was in Melbourne. I was involved in organising it with Louise Birchall and Caroline Phillips from Melbourne University. It was great, actually, to have a conference on Irigaray in Australia. So she's a Irigaray herself is a, a woman in her 80s. There's a lot of increasingly work devoted to reading and thinking about her work. And there's also increasingly a lot of engagement in thinking about sexual difference both in a rigorous thought but beyond engaging with her books and you know drawing on her framework but extending it so for example elizabeth gross who i mentioned in the last program is a very well-known australian feminist philosopher and she's worked for many years on irigore's work directly but she also has published a lot on sexual difference which is not so much engaged in close reading of a rigor, but more in relation to her own thinking on darwin for example charles darwin's work gross is probably the most significant sexual difference feminist the best known one to i wouldn't say to to emphasize the need to think about sexual difference in terms of life on earth in much broader terms plant life animal life i might add a rigueur of course doesn't deny that sexual difference is something that that most of life on earth that we that needs to be in order for the reproduction of life but the emphasis of most of her publications is on thinking about how to articulate relationships between sexed beings, between women and men in which there is no longer a hierarchy between us, in which the male subject position no longer has a kind of monopoly on on what is considered valuable, important, serious or even in some extremely misogynist cases the monopoly on what is considered human with women being somehow seen as less than human or inhuman. So her work is, is mostly concerned with how do, we, how do we think about relations between women and men in a way that affirms us as different kinds of subjects but of equivalent dignity her her arguments about it are very broad in a lot of ways it's not prescriptive it's not sort of she doesn't she doesn't prescribe rules so much as suggest i would say certain kinds of tendencies this is quite a gear shift that i And this is a program on women philosophers, so I I imagine a lot of your audience are interested in feminism anyway. One of the things that I find a, a challenge, but it's something that I, for example, I think about this a lot when I'm teaching, but I think about this a lot in general, in thinking about our culture, is is the way in which i don't believe and i feminist i mean sexual difference feminism is is not i don't think any of us would argue that sometimes i mean i'm marking essays at the moment by undergraduate students and i mean sometimes sometimes you'll hear people say things like they'll talk about the patriarchy and the implication of a statement like the patriarchy would be that the whole of the world is run by the patriarchy. And it's it's very totalizing way of talking about how the world works. Obviously, patriarchy is not globally successful because if it was, there would be no feminism and, you know, we wouldn't be having this conversation. And the other thing, I guess, uh, sometimes people will think that talking about patriarchy means that you're saying all men or most men are X and, and, um and, and this is how it works. And, and women are oppressed. I think that one of the appeals of, I, one of the things that I think is important for feminism is to acknowledge that while we live in a, a world or worlds perhaps interlocking worlds in which patriarchy is a, a, you know, a very much, a, a, you know, an operative set of structures. There are points of slippage where that is not straightforwardly the case anymore. Um, obviously, feminism has had a great deal of success, uh, especially so-called liberal feminism in the small-l sense or equality feminism. Women have the vote. We've had a woman prime minister, although look how that went in terms of the rhetoric that she was... Um, I actually call it a rhetorical matricide with my friends, what what was done to Julia Gillard. I'm not a fan of the Labor Party particularly, but I, I think that the the kind of rhetorical sexual violence that she was subjected to was truly something that I hope we all learn from in years and years to come. I, I wanted to say something about John Keyes. So there's been a news story. It was on the front page of The Guardian and the ABC websites yesterday for at least some of the day. It may have disappeared. Apparently... So a young, a waitress working in a restaurant in New Zealand that John Keyes and his wife would frequent has written anonymously on a left-wing New Zealand website a a blog about, I think it's a blog, uh, about John Keyes would regularly come into the restaurant and he would pull her ponytail and he, he kept doing this to her. He's... Uh, And she eventually got so angry with him that she said, if you do that again, I'll hit you. This happened over a period of months. At some point, his wife, who was present in these situations, said, stop, you know, leave the poor girl alone. When she said, I'll hit you if you do it again, he stopped. And then I think he went back to the restaurant subsequently and gave her two bottles of wine and apologised and said, I didn't realise that, you know, you 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 had a problem with it. If you're interested in this story, look it up. One of the things that's interesting to me about it, it's appalling, obviously, is the way that it's being talked about in the media. Uh, so I think the leader of the Greens in, the New, Zealand, in New Zealand described his behaviour as, um, quote, weird, or and the Human Rights Commissioner in New Zealand um, said this is an example of bullying. I agree that it's bullying, but it's also, hello, it's sexual harassment. It's not a, a it, to call it bullying and not to talk about the I would call it sexed, nature of, of what he's doing is is kind of a... It's a whitewashing or it's a de-sexing of what's actually going on. Oh, I couldn't see him going in there and pulling a man's ponytail, could you? No. I think there's something kind of sexualized about mm. it. And, 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 I mean, a man who did do that to another man, and, and obviously that sort of thing, it does happen too, it, I, I would say that in a certain sense that would be a crime that for me i i would actually call it a crime that has a a certain sex dimension but it's a it's a it's a it's an encounter between two men it's an encounter between two men which i think has a different kind of status than the the status of of the harassing of a woman in this situation i mean i think he i, I think it's so bad i think I, I, if you know, I think that he, this should ruin his career. I suspect it will not do that, but um, he's very popular. I believe. I was. What I, I guess, what the reason I bring this story up is to just talk about the way that women are subjected to forms of, let's say, microaggressions all the time by men, and often told to just you know that we just expected to live with this to get used to it it's not a big deal it's not a problem it's the way things are and often it's it's it, it's it's either it's either minimized in terms of its significance but it's also sometimes the very uh, the sexist nature of it and um, the hierarchically sexed nature would be the way i would put it in sexual difference feminist language if i was writing an article about it but the sexist nature of it is often kind of painted out so it gets called bullying or if you get upset, you're, you know, you're taking it too seriously. Yeah. So I don't know. That was just a divergence into talking about um, John Key's. but a um, rigorous argument is, is one that uh, for me, uh, I think is appealing because equality, feminism it can't speak to the differences in experience that women and men have, I think, in a way that sexual difference feminism can. I think that, I don't know, like, for example, sometimes equality feminism would get caught up in, in, in debates about how many women are on boards of corporations, these sorts of things. Sexual difference feminism would would be questioning I mean, Aurigure actually says about patriarchal power, or what she calls phallic power, that there's a quotation from a well-known interview of hers from the 1970s, The Power of Discourse and the Subordination of the Feminine is the name of the interview. She says, It takes a certain naivety to think that in the simple fact of being a woman, one remains outside of phallic power. So, I mean, for her, in a certain sense, you can have women that would end up occupying significant positions of influence and power in social structures where they behave in a, in a way that is, uh, conforms with phallic power. So you have someone like, um, for example, Margaret Thatcher, you know, invading the Falklands, or Julia Gillard being tough on border protection. In a certain sense, they, they were functioning in... They are women obviously, but they were functioning in a style of politics in which, in order to be seen as strong leaders, they did things that uh, were in conformity with a, a, a patriarchal patriarchal masculinity and patriarchal ways of or- ordering the world. For rigor uh, the very nature of the way in which we think about, uh, let's say, the social contract, um, the people that would make up a nation-state would need to be fundamentally rethought. So the basis of liberal democracy is fraternity, um, so that we are, we are all equals in our fraternal relations with one another. The word fraternity, of course, refers to this idea of brotherhood among men. It, it, in a, it, it, and, and slotting women into that is, is not, doesn't really address the different relation that women have to the public sphere.
0: So, would you like to tell us about what the relevance of animal compassion
1: is? Animal compassion, that expression, uh, animal compassion, it's the name of an essay by Rig Ray, quite a recent essay, that she contributed to a volume, an edited volume of a collection of essays on animals and philosophy. One of the most significant developments in the theoretical humanities and in continental philosophy, so Eric Ray is a continental philosopher, I work in continental philosophy too, one of the most significant developments in the last, I don't know, 15 to 20 years is an emergence of concern with the status of the animal. That in the humanities, that the very idea of the humanities has been focused on thinking about humans and that animals, non-human animals, have been left outside of this picture. Uh, So there's a lot of philosophy arguing, for example, that uh, modernity depends upon systematic cruelty to animals. Origaray, by the way, is a... um, So Origaray is not an animal activist, but she certainly, she has done... She, in this essay, Animal Compassion, she, she says that the focus of her work is on the relation of sexual difference between human beings, between, for her, women and men. As I said, sexual difference can be construed, I think, beyond women and men. There are perhaps more than two sexes. I will say there are more than two sexes, but there have to be at least two. Animals, non-human animals... She, in the essay Animal Compassion, she suggests that we need to affirm uh, what she calls our, a relational mystery, As a, for example, as a woman in her encounter with a non-human animal, that they have a subjective, let's call it a subjective experience of the world and of the environment in which they live, which is different from and irreducible to my experience of being in the world as a woman. So... She's not developed a kind of wide-ranging and systematic account of what might be done in relation to the status of non-human animals in humanities or in, the, in philosophy. She doesn't pretend to, that she focuses on sexual difference between human beings. But in some ways I think her work, her work's effort to articulate an ethics of respect and of non of a non-colonizing of other people where i do not claim to know the other uh, another woman or uh, another man i don't claim to know their experience from the inside i cannot do so i think it could have implications for how we think about our relations towards other animals she's a vegetarian by the way yeah, I mean, the name Animal Compassion, she gives it to... It's actually very enigmatic. It's the name of the essay. She never really spells out in a didactic way what she means by it. I've taken her idea of animal compassion to... I think she's suggesting that she has experienced a certain kind of compassion on the part of a number of non-human animals toward her from which, for which she says she wishes to give thanks um, without claiming to understand it. She talks about her encounters with birds, a rabbit, a cat. And she. it's interesting because she doesn't talk about where some philosophers, when they consider the status of non-human animals, will talk about them lacking certain capacities relative to humans. And human is seen as the kind of measure of intelligence. She, if anything, suggests that a number of animals that she's encountered and she doesn't stick to particular species or distinguish clearly between her encounters with a specific cat or cats more broadly. So it's not as philosophically rigorous as some of her work on, say, close readings of Nietzsche or Heidegger or Plato is. But what she says is that she experiences a compassion from animals, a respect for her in a certain sense and even for offering a like a certain kind of companionship with her in particular situations that she, as I said, respects. So a lot of philosophers, when they come to the question of the animal, will spend loads of time trying to decide about the difference between man, they'll say, and the animal or non-human animals. And they will somehow group the human species as a part, sometimes in most extreme cases, in a kind of denial of the fact that we are ourselves primates. And they'll say you know things they'll say things about our capacities with language and questioning that and where you know humans don't have that i think there's an interesting alliance between um animal studies and feminism in its effort to critique the way that a certain kind of idea of the human as man I haven't even touched on post-colonialism, but um, especially the white Western man has colonised in Western philosophy the idea of what the subject is, even while claiming or pretending to being a neutral principle of thought and rational thinking accessible to anyone. So critical animal studies and feminist philosophy and sexual difference are key loci in which that critique is taking place and also an effort to think about new models for thinking which allows animals to think and, you know, women and men to relate to each other in a respectful way without hierarchy.
0: One, one book that comes to mind is Carol J. Adams' The Sexual Politics of Meat. Yes. And just one, of, one yes. of many. Yes. So thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Thank you. It's been great to be here. And I've been speaking to Dr. Rebecca Hill from RMIT about sexual difference. All your promises have been broken now, Just like I'm Jermaine Greer, and you're listening to 3CR Treaty Now. So, Fred, how are we today?
1: Uh, Yeah, yeah, good. good. Mm,
0: We've certainly got some cavities here. In 16, 27 and
1: 36. How did that happen?
0: Sugar overload. You're in need of H3O. What's that? H3O? Simple. Switch sugary drinks for water for 30 days. Keep it up and you may hear less of this.
1: Take Vic Health's H3O Challenge and switch sugary drinks for water for 30 days. Find out more at h3ochallenge.com.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. Spoken by Kate Gorman and Jeremy Hopkins. Hi,
0: I am Kate Rigby, Professor of Environmental Humanities at Monash University and I'm a fan of 3CR Community Radio, which is 855 on your AM dial and I recommend in particular... Radical Philosophy. Is something worrying you? Need someone to talk to? Having trouble at work or at home? Call WIRE, Women's Information, on 1300 134 130, Monday to Friday, 9am to 5pm. Talk to a woman who cares. It's free and confidential, Victoria Wide. You can talk to us about anything. You can also talk to us in your own language through our telephone interpreter service. So call WIRE on 1300 134 130 or visit wire.org.au. WIRE is a 3CR supporter. We've come to the end of the program. So I'd like to thank Dr. Rebecca Hill for speaking about sexual difference.